Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're speaking with a very interesting guest, Karen Buxman. Karen is an international speaker, neurohumorist, and author. She's also a nurse. Karen has a TED Talk and has been hired by over 500 organizations, including NASA and the Mayo Clinic, to speak about the power of humor. Stephanie actually saw Karen speak at Nursing Grand Rounds at the University of Iowa and loved her presentation, so we decided to reach out to her and ask her to be a podcast guest. She had kindly agreed to talk with us today about how clinicians can use humor to build connections and trust with patients, which of course is what we are all about doing. And before we get into our interview with Karen, we want to make our monthly pitch to become a patron of the Woman Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH, where you can get our lovely show notes, or you can find out more on our website at womancenteredhealth.com. We're also trying to reach our goal of $100 per month in support of our podcast so that Stephanie and I do not have to support the show with our own paycheck, and we only need $33 more to reach that goal. And if you become a monthly subscriber or a patron of our podcast, you can help us meet our goal by donating as little as $5 per month. Also, if you like this podcast, please tell your colleagues and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. We always ask our guests to provide a little bit of details about your background. So clinical experience, your educational background, and most interestingly, how you got to where you are today. Thank you guys so much for inviting me on this show because I had such a great time with everyone when I was in Iowa. And a lot of people ask, how did you get where you are? You know, I, I've never heard of a neuro humorist. And so my background is nursing. And I started out nursing in the Midwest. I, uh, I was in med surge. I, uh, I did a lot of critical care. I was in the ER, in the OR, in the ICU. I taught pediatrics. I taught obstetrics. I taught long-term care. I jumped over and I did some home health for a while. I did a stint in hospice. Uh, I taught psychiatric nursing, and then I did some air ambulance. And I know what some of your listeners are thinking. They're thinking, oh my gosh, this woman cannot hold a job. <laughs> it's like, but the piece that's, that's core for all of this is that I love learning. And when I'm in an area and I've learned a, a lot, then I, I look at another area and say, what else can I be learning? And so while I was teaching at a, at, at a college of nursing, I went back for my master's. And at this point in time, was doing research and a thesis, and I stumbled across this just this short little article in one of my peer review journals about a nurse researcher, Vera Robinson. And in this uh, little paragraph of a description, she was describing her dissertation on the use of humor by Native American Indians, and I just was struck by the fact that somebody in healthcare would 
research humor. And it, it was just like the skies opened up. I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do that too. And I went back with all of this enthusiasm to my advisors and said, I want to study humor. And they're like, yeah, no. Um, and, and because they said it wasn't professional, it was too vague and it wasn't serious. And they had all of these reasons, but, but I was so persistent that they finally jumped on the bandwagon with me. And the people began hearing about my research and they were asking me to share my findings. And at one point, the there were so many requests for me to share my findings that that I looked at, you know, how how can I spend my time sharing this information and sharing the benefits? And so I decided I'll I'll try sharing from a speaking stage for a year. And if this works, I'll continue doing it. If it doesn't, I, I will go back to more traditional setting. And um, that was back in, in 1990, 1991. And this vocation has allowed me to share the benefits of applied and therapeutic humor around the planet. It, it has just been such an exciting job. I am still a nurse. I still have a license. You know, I'm an entrepreneur and just in a, in a bit of a different role than maybe a more traditional nurse or healthcare provided. But I'm, I'm, because this is such an unusual approach, uh, I am so delighted that you guys were open-minded enough to let me share this message with your listeners. So thank you for that. And I'll have to be 100% transparent here. When Stephanie first told me about you and that you talked about humor and, and how you can do this, and I was a little hesitant. So I was like, I'm just envisioning our listeners as practitioners trying to like be humorous during a gynecological exam. And I don't know that <laughs> laughing in the presence of a vagina is <laughs> is good. Like, I kind of feel a little red flaggy. <laughs> like, so, so, so I too am very interested in this conversation. I will say I was a little skeptical, but I'm excited after our screener call and, and sharing this with our listeners as well. So if our listeners are also like, what, we're talking about humor during an exam? This sounds like crazy talk. I was right there with you. <laughs> All right. So, Karen, we also like to ask our guests, what informs your perspective? In other words, why do you do what you do with humor specifically and what is most valuable to you? You know, I want to I want to go back and address something that you mentioned uh, about how, you know, oh, this really appropriate and what were people going to be thinking? And do you bring humor into, you know, a gynecological exam? And, and so... I think that, that this is a really important point that we address right up front because what I've identified is that there are three purposes for humor. And this is part of what drives me. I'm not totally evading your question. But what I discovered is that the primary purpose that we might think of humor is for entertainment. And we measure the effectiveness of that purpose through laughter. Are we getting the other person to laugh? But the other two purposes of humor are influence and well-being. And when we're measuring our effectiveness through influence, we're looking at what is the quality of the relationships that we have. And when we're looking at the purpose of applying humor for well-being, we look at the results in terms of how have we improved someone's state of wellness, whether that's 
emotionally, physically, psychologically, socially, even spiritually. And so what drives me is this understanding that humor has the power to have benefits in all of these areas. When you apply humor to health, we can create wellness. When we apply it to a business, we can create profitability. When we apply humor to education, we can generate more knowledge. When we apply humor to another person, we can create this connectedness, even intimacy. When we apply humor to a group, we can create community. And so this knowledge and knowing the power of this humor, it just does. It just drives me. And it's not about being funny. However, when you practice humor over an extended period of time. And by practicing, I'm, I'm actually talking about more developing your appreciation for humor. Once you develop a perspective for being able to see humor and hear humor and experience humor, particularly that others are missing, now the the being funny will fall into place if that's your desire. Some people have no desire to be funny, and that's fine. That's not what this is about. But that appreciation for humor to connect with another person and to help them be in a healthier state, this is what I think is such exciting news for those who are listening to our discussion today. You're obviously very passionate about humor. So I think that this is a great time for us to just jump right in. And I think that our first question, just to, you know, get everybody up to speed, is let's just first talk broadly about your title, Neurohumorist. What does that title (laughs) mean? (laughs) So as I mentioned, you know, I've been researching and studying humor for 30 years, but over the last seven years or so, I've really immersed myself at the intersection of humor and the brain. And that's what I am as a neurohumorist. I live at that intersection of humor and the brain because this is such a, a new field and it's so exciting. And I know some of your people are are listening and going, oh my gosh, another neurohumorist. You know, when are they gonna get somebody more interesting on? But this <laughs> this field of, I'm sure that's exactly right. They're thinking. Yeah, right. So that's what that means. It's it's this wonderful, you know, it's like back in the days of uh, when we first discovered um, Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. No, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. It's like, no, I'm looking at, you know, oh, this is about humor in the brain. And no, you got, you're, you're putting neuroscience on my humor. No, you're putting humor in my neuroscience. But the two, when you combine them, it's just this wonderfully delicious outcome. And, and again, this is very exciting. New field, new territory. Yeah. So you mentioned in your introduction that you just kind of came across this article when you were in graduate school about humor. So I guess what resonated about that article and humor for you, so especially related to the science of it? Yes, because up until that point, I had not been introduced to the concept of humor as anything other than entertainment. And this began to open the doors for me that, but wait, there's more. So 
this exploration of, well, well, how could we harness humor for our benefit? So when I started researching this, uh, you know, part of it was lacking. There was not a lot of research at the time. This field is growing leaps and bounds. But initially, there wasn't much more than what had been um, the, the interest that had been produced by Norman Cousins, who wasn't even a healthcare professional. But he wrote a book back in the 70s called Anatomy of an Illness. A lot of people are familiar with this story a little bit. Uh, He was a gentleman who had very debilitating ankylosing spondylitis. His physician had even said that this could be uh, something that he could die from. And one of his dear friends happened to be Alan Funt. And this is all in his book. But Alan Funt, for those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, was the producer and the uh, creator of Candid Camera, which basically was this pranking show for the younger people who are listening that was back in the, probably in the 60s. So this relationship the two of them had, Norman Cousins checked himself out of the hospital and into the hotel that I think was just uh, maybe even across the street is very proximal. And, and with the support of his physician, it started engaging in a therapy that he created of including these reels and reels of candid camera that his friend Alan Funt would bring to him. And over a period of time, His uh, inflammatory process decreased and eventually went away. He actually overcame the ankylosing spondylitis. He had a complete remission. And this began his interest and his journey in what was to become the field of psychoneuroimmunology. And even though he wasn't a healthcare professional, he was an editor of the Saturday Evening Post. He went on to start teaching in medical schools. And he repeated this process when he had this massive heart attack about 20 years later. The book was called A Healing Heart. And then eventually he went on to write a very large tome on on psychoneuroimmunology called Head First Biology of Hope. But because of this, there was this spur of people getting into this field um, in in the realms of psychology and eventually in physiology. And so much has been learned from this. And again, this is something that I think can be very exciting for those who are listening. And so, you know, the benefits physiologically, what we find is that it affects positively every single body system. Any system that can be negatively affected by stress or inflammation can be benefited by humor and other positive emotions. And and beyond even just the physiology, the piece that I think is so powerful for those who are listening to us today are the benefits that have to do with creating relationships. Because my belief is anyone who has to handle another person's money or another person's body really needs to be able to establish a sense of trust. And what we're finding now in the brain, and this is very new information when you take a look at this in the in the scheme of all grand things, is that humor 
changes up our brain chemistry and it puts our brain in what's called a toward state, toward that other person versus a way state, which is what we experience when we feel ourselves in a state of fear or in a state of stress or in a state of threat. And when you look at relationships in healthcare, we come in and we're asking people to disrobe and we're asking them to share their bodies and share their vaginas and and all of this. And, And this puts their brain in a state of stress. It puts them in a state of stress. Any human being, it would put you in a state of stress. Is this person gonna harm me physically? Are they gonna harm me emotionally? You know, what is the unknown that I don't know here? What are the results of this gonna be? Am I gonna be sick? Is this gonna be something more serious? Could it be cancer? I mean, this all All of these things that are going on in the brain create an away state. And when our brains are in an away state, we're not hearing, we're not receiving, and we're not following up on the information that our provider, that our professional, that our expert might be giving us. And so for those of us who are in this intimate relationship with another human being, in these very private, intimate, physical kinds of exams and relationships could really benefit from the experience of leveraging humor. But please don't misunderstand. I am not trying to encourage people to walk into an exam room and start joking about that person's vagina. That's not what we're talking about. I've heard a lot of funny stories. Vaginas can be very funny, but that's not what we're talking about here. Does that make sense? Totally. Yes. So Karen, you bring up a good point then. So then if you're not trying to teach our listeners or us how to be funny or to come in and be funny, then then what is your message? What I would love for the listeners to take away here is that you, all of us, can use humor to build that sense of trust and build that sense of safety without ever telling a joke, without ever having to be funny. And this is a skill set. This is something that, that takes some time to develop. And I think the very first step is to assess your own ability to appreciate humor. What I find in the healthcare profession, so many people tell me this, that it, that it just breaks my heart, that because of our intense schedules and because of the rules and the regulations, and we only have X amount of time with the patient, and we've got all of these things that we have, we're spread so thin that we really don't have the time to see the humor in situations. People tell me, oh my gosh, it's been forever since I've laughed. And I, you know, I I don't even know if I have a sense of humor. And I think everybody with a healthy brain has a sense of humor. It's just that many of us have been socialized and maybe by teachers, maybe by colleagues, maybe by bosses, maybe by parents, but we've been socialized to clamp down on that. You're goofing off. You're having way too much fun and you're not being serious. All of these kinds of questions. People who are high performers tell me, but what if I'm not seen as professional? What if I cross the line? And because of this, they hesitate to experience their sense of humor. And 
I'm asking you to start from a place of even being aware of what your sense of humor is now. And my definition of sense of humor is the ability to find amusement that results in a smile, a laugh, or feelings of enjoyment. What are the things that amuse you? And to be able to experience this, because what I find is I I want you to raise your awareness of your self-talk. Is it okay for you to have a sense of humor? Is it okay for you to express it? And to start opening yourself up to opportunities of listening and watching for the humor that is abundant around you. And I can already hear some of the thoughts of the listeners. They're going, oh, but you don't understand. There's nothing funny happening where I work. (laughs) And my response to that is, if that's your belief, that's your reality. I guarantee you there is humor that is abundant around you every day. Not at every moment, but every day there is something humorous that is going on around you. How can you tap into that? And going back to our brains, we have the reticular activating system in our brain, which is a filter, very much like the internet. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever like clicked on a pair of shoes that look like, oh man, those look interesting, but oh, I don't have any time to go shopping. And so you go to a different web page, and man, there's those pair of shoes again, or a similar pair of shoes. And there's things that start popping up in ads all over because the inter- internet says, oh, you showed interest in that. So we're going to show you more of this. That's what the reticular activating system does for your brain. Um, maybe there's been somebody at work who announced, oh, I'm pregnant. And the next thing you know, you th- you're thinking, oh my gosh, everybody in our whole healthcare system is pregnant these days. They were all there and they were pregnant before you just weren't aware of it, but your your RAS allowed you to see more of it. It can do the same thing with humor. And if you tell your brain, I'm interested in this, what am I missing? It may take a while, but pretty soon you're going to see something humorous and your brain is going to light up and say, oh, that was cool. And a couple of synapses are going to wire and you look for some more and you're going to see it a little sooner the next time and your synapses are going to rewire. And the process repeats. Hebb's law says neurons that fire together, wire together. And eventually this is going to become common practice. And once you can grow your level of appreciation, it is a natural segue into being able to experience more humor with your patient and with your colleagues. And I am not, and again, I'm not saying that you're necessarily even trying to go in and make that other person laugh. But when you can connect through humorous stories or humorous observations, things that don't even necessarily result in a laugh, but that may be a smile or even internally just the feeling of amusement, then what we have is the brain starts generating oxytocin, the bonding chemical. It starts generating serotonin. We get a hit of dopamine. The cortisol begins to fall. The norepinephrine begins to fall. And now we have an experience where we can start building a relationship of trust. And, and there's, you know, there's much, much more than meets the eye here. The, the ability, the confidence of a professional to poke a little fun at yourself. This, I think, would be one of the 
the best abilities to do with another patient because when you are poking gentle fun at yourself, then what you're doing is you're saying, oh, I'm not perfect. I have a little fault here. And the other person sees that opening, that opportunity, and what it tells the brain is, oh, this is safe, or at least it's safer than I initially thought it was going to be. And now we have the ability to start building that trust. So self-effacing humor, if you can, you know, make a joke, oh, you know, I started out and I, I, you know, almost came to work with mismatched shoes or something about what you've done, or, you know, I came here and found that I had my left blinker on the entire way, you know, or there's a direct correlation too that the shorter your humor, the less funny it has to be. A little remark, a little comment, a little throwaway line, something like that doesn't have to be fall down funny, but it will start that gentle and gradual process of developing a sense of trust. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> that was a lot. And I have a couple follow-up questions to that. One, sure. what if our listeners, because I know that, what if you have an inappropriate sense of humor or you find things funny that maybe are just not appropriate for the clinic <laughs> setting? Or the other thought I had too, building on that is, say you have this kind of self-deprecating humor, like, oh, I almost came to work with two different shoes. How do you toe the line then of not ruining your own credibility? That's such a great question. (laughs) Yeah, I could see me as a patient. If I'm meeting someone for the first time and they told me that they couldn't pick out two colors right, I'd be like, oh gosh, and you're responsible for XYZ. (laughs) You know, that would be concerning. I love that you asked that question. Thank you so much. And here's the best response for this. When you are using self-effacing humor, one, it's just little doses of it. And the other thing is you you want to make funny comments or self-deprecating comments about your actions and not of who you are because you want to admit that you made a mistake, but you don't want to admit you are a mistake. And so you're absolutely, I mean, you wouldn't go in and start making self-deprecating comments about, whoa, you wouldn't believe how badly I botched that last pelvic exam. No, that is going to totally, you know, create fear in the heart. I might laugh if somebody said that. (laughs) I leave, but I laugh. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but making little subtle comments about yourself and your actions that can actually become very endearing to people. And again, a little bit goes a long way. I'm not telling you to get up there and just spend 20 minutes tearing yourself down because then it is a case of people going, whoa, she needs professional help. But these, you know, these little throwaway things, this is what makes us human. And as healthcare professionals, I think so many times we're so worried about being professional that we forget that people, they want us to be human. They want us to be human. They want us to be smart, but they want us to be human. They want us to see them as a mother, as a daughter, as a sister, as an aunt, as somebody, as a friend, and not just, oh, this is my 1030 appointment. They want to know that they are seen as a human being and that they can see you as a human also. And so I think that we have kind of this overly fearful sense that we can't show any fallibility. And and I think that is 
is not the case. But in terms of your other question, there are so many times where inappropriate humor, oh my gosh, it is so abundant, particularly in healthcare. And there's a great reason for that. The closer you are to tragedy or death or unfairness, the darker your humor becomes. And oh my gosh, that's, you know, that describes our day (laughs) on a daily basis. That describes a lot. It it does. It describes a lot. And so that's why we see so much dark humor, gallows humor, sick humor. And I'm going to say something that I think will surprise folks. And that is, I think that sick humor and gallows humor, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. And, and. It's not the humor that you share with your patient. It's the humor that you share with people who have this shared experience with you, usually your your close colleagues, in the confines of a space where it will not be shared with people who don't have that experience. And this is the number one mistake people make. With my upcoming book, Funny Means Money, coming out with Forbes Books this fall, I identified seven building blocks of humor. And when people understand and embrace and practice these seven building blocks, you can avoid, in my professional estimation, about 99% of all potential humor fails. There's always that 1% who is the person who brought in their own baggage, their own filters, and it wouldn't matter how cautiously you tiptoed the line, they will find something to be offended about. But if you understand these seven areas, you can crush it with the use of your humor. And the the one that I think is most important, particularly for healthcare professionals, is the building block that I call bond, B-O-N-D, relationship, rapport. And here's the thing. When you are bonded with somebody, it's somebody that you have worked with for years and years and years, and you have so many shared experiences your humor can be riskier because if you share humor that is possibly offensive, they're going to give you a pass. They're going to say, oh my gosh, Stephanie, I can't believe you just said that. They're going to chuckle and you're going to move on. But if you use the kind of humor that's offensive with someone who doesn't have that shared experience, that somebody who is a new patient or a patient's family member, and you use humor that's offensive or crosses the line, now you've damaged that relationship. You possibly ruined that relationship. And our brains are created in a way that that misguide us into thinking that you and I have more in common than we really do. And so oftentimes people think, oh, you know, I work in obstetrics and gynecology and she works in obstetrics and gynecology. So she's going to have the same political beliefs that I do. No. Oh, I like this kind of humor. So she'll like this kind of humor. No, we can't make those assumptions. And so when in doubt, leave it out. But if you're in the confines of the group and you know that this isn't going to be shared with people that it could be potentially harmful with, dark humor, gallows humor, oh my gosh, this is, this is a survival skill. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, people who can't laugh leave our profession because we have to have healthy ways of coping with the 
horrendous things that we see, with the unfair things that we see, with the situations that are so intense and so stressful. We have to have, and I'm not saying that humor is the end-all be-all, but it certainly is recognized as a healthy coping mechanism, unlike smoking or drinking or binging on other kinds of things or drugs. Humor, when used appropriately, is an extremely healthy coping mechanism. And so I I highly encourage people to use it. it. It will bond you. It will connect you. An example of this is she was a nurse practitioner and she was telling me about a patient that she was going to perform a pelvic exam on. And, and this was in a very poor part of the country, uh, people who didn't have the means and access to health care that is appropriate. And so she went in in this, it was a Southern state, Southern accents. And when she walked in to see her patient who's up in stirrups and she said, so, okay, is this your annual? And the woman said, oh, no, ma'am, this ain't my annual. It's my vaginal. Now, healthcare provider to healthcare provider, that was funny. We both laughed about that. But to share that with somebody who isn't in our profession, to share that with somebody who is a a patient or a family member, I would never repeat that kind of humor to another person. They wouldn't get it. They wouldn't understand it. And they'd most likely be offended by it. So does this make sense to you? Yes, it definitely seems like there's also maybe, and maybe you can speak to this as well, almost an intelligence that needs to come with using humor. Yes. Yes, you are so right on that. And there is a connection to the appropriate use of humor and emotional intelligence, because what this means is your ability to step into that other person's shoes and to be able to empathize with that other person. And so you're right on. There is this intelligence that comes with it. And so that's why people so often misunderstand that we're expecting them when we say, we want you to use more humor in your profession, that we're wanting you to walk in like a, some kind of a clown or some kind of a comedian. And that is nothing about stepping into another person's situation. That's strictly for the purpose of entertainment. And that isn't taking into consideration anyone's experiences and anyone's feelings. And so to recognize and understand that I think is a really important point. So so thank you for making that. So it, keeping on that theme, you talk about emotional intelligence and one of those things is like self-awareness. And I think that maybe most of our listeners would consider themselves emotionally intelligent, but then also there needs to be some self awareness of that. So for example, we had a woman tell us that she went and saw a new OB-GYN, a male, and he had this fun-o-meter button on his lab coat, and she found that offensive. And I can definitely see how somebody would think that. And I'm sure he was (laughs) well-meaning. So, you know, just kind of talking more about that, like appropriate or how to maybe check ourselves a little bit. And also, if we feel like we see another provider or clinician being 
inappropriate, how to sort of step in? Mm -hmm. Great questions. Great questions. And I like this because you're asking such high level questions. (laughs) Uh, And so that's, that's really a sign that you're, you're understanding this and you're getting this. And so what I would say with the, the funnel meter is that I would say that a good number of people would find that funny, would find that appropriate. But what we need to take into account is that, again, it's not for everybody. And we can't do a one-size-fits-all. And so when we're looking at the kind of humor that we're going to be sharing with somebody, or as we come into our day, you know, I would have to ask myself, if I'm going to be wearing something all day long, does that mean this is going to be something that would be appropriate to 100% of the people that I interact with? And if there's any doubt, then I would say, "Mm, probably lose it. Um, Maybe it would be appropriate for certain patients or certain times of the day. But until I had an established relationship with someone, I I would start with something much more subtle and much more self-effacing than I would that is is more outward in terms of that kind of humor. And so to be taking this into account and and if you see a fellow colleague who is experiencing or expressing humor that you feel is inappropriate, I feel it's it's our responsibility to take them aside and share that with them. I think that's how we grow this field. And I would certainly do that for, you know, a student. I would do that for a a colleague. I would do that for other people to just take them aside and say, hey, personally, I thought that was very entertaining. But, you know, I'm not sure that it was really appropriate for Mrs. Smith. And, you know, she's so stressed out. And she is, you know, her her brain is just seizing with stress alerts that, you know, there might have been a better way to approach that. You know, what do you think? And get their input on it. Because I think, you know, everybody's doing the best they can at any point in time. But I wouldn't just say, t- tell that person, oh, don't use any more humor. And that's, that's, I think, what I see also often in organizations, period, whether it's healthcare, whether it's corporate, whether it's government, is we give people two guidelines generally. Either we say, use common sense, which we all know isn't common practice, <laughs> or we say, don't use it, which means now people are going to use it. They're just going to use it behind closed doors and it's going to leak out. And when it is, when it is shared, it's potentially inappropriate. And so that's why my mission, as long as I'm able to take another breath, is to show people how to use it appropriately and teach them how to use it appropriately, guide them when they're using it inappropriately, because I think the benefits far outweigh the setbacks. And so with that particular gentleman, he may have upset one patient and he may have delighted 15 others during the course of that day. I don't know. I wasn't there. But with some guidance, then he could take his success rate from maybe 
80% to 90% to 95%. And that's when we start seeing the benefits of trust and, and stronger relationships and people who now are experiencing less stress. And because they're less stressed, they're actually going to hear the instructions that you give them. And they're going to actually follow some of the advice that you share with them rather than having their minds closed because their amygdala has been hijacked and it wouldn't matter how articulate you were, they didn't hear what you said. And even if they heard it, their cognitive capacity was so low that they they wouldn't begin to be able to integrate it. Yeah, I guess what I'm hearing a lot is, you know, because humor is so important, it's worth taking that risk to maybe fail sometimes. I totally agree with that. And I think that's maybe what we don't necessarily do. And I think as clinicians, for the most part, we're kind of perfectionists. So we don't want to Uh, fail because failure is a big deal in our profession. Failure is a big deal. And when we're talking about brain surgery, (laughs) you know, when we're talking about these delicate kinds of procedures that we do, I mean, you know, the, the risk is much higher, but for us to start taking gentle steps and being willing to occasionally fail, you can't grow if you don't fail. We didn't come out of nursing or out of medicine with being shown how to do something. And then we did it a hundred percent correctly from that point on. We had labs, we had opportunities to do return demonstrations, we had different kinds of experiences where we got to practice our skill set. And I want people to understand that this also is a skill set and that you're not going to get it 100% right. I still don't get it 100% right. But I know that when I do make a mistake now, I'm aware of it much more quickly And it helps me to course correct for the next time that same kind of experience comes up. But if you don't start practicing, you're never going to achieve any level of mastery with this. And so I love that point that you just made. That was that was brilliant. I mean, I was also thinking of, and I don't remember the movie well, but I think the classic example of a funny clinician is Patch Adams. Yes. And I remember, you know, I was pretty young when I saw that movie, but I think he failed a lot. <laughs> but yes, I think in the long run, he's that's how he's remembered. I will tell you this also, that Patch Adams, I know Patch Adams. I've shared the stage with Patch Adams. I love that he has introduced this concept. And quite honestly, Robin Williams was the perfect person to play him. But I also will tell you, he is an exaggeration. Even in person, he is an exaggeration. He is not what I would suggest that the... I don't want to say ordinary, but it, but, but, the, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, the everyday, you know, healthcare professional. Patch Adams was a clown. He is a clown, literally a clown. I'm not just using that as an adjective. He is a clown, and he shows up in clown pants, and his hair has blue streaks, you know, all through it. This was way before it was it was common practice to put blue in your hair. But I mean, you know, and he has uh, two earrings, one's a fork, and one's a, a miniature fork and a miniature spoon hanging from his ears. And I mean, he just, he 
is the personification of clowning. And I think while it made for a great movie, I think in terms of the expectation for healthcare professionals, I think that 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 may have been a bit scary. And and I'm certainly not encouraging someone to to try to go out and be a buffoon. That was authentic for him, but he is is a one of a kind person. And I don't think that it would work for most people to practice that level of humor with their patients. But it was it was a great introduction and to maybe open our minds to the fact that humor can be healing and that humor can be a skill set. And so while we don't want a bunch of patch atoms running on every hospital floor, the fact is that a healthcare provider and a high performer who is open to mastering the skill set of humor is going to have a much more effective relationship with their peers, with their patients, with their family. And not only are they going to be more effective, but they're going to be happier. They're going to have a happier life. And who wouldn't want a little more of that? (laughs) So Karen, I have a question or, you know, maybe more of it's of a reflection or just seeing what your thoughts are. But when you think about this general sensitive area that our podcast sensors around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on how do you use humor differently or does it look different based on if the clinician's a man or a woman or if you're a more senior versus new practitioner? Yes, these are great high level questions. And I'll go back a little bit earlier to my analogy or, or my explanation about when our brain is in a threat state. And so this really depends on the the patient and healthcare provider's relationship. And so does it make a difference to that particular patient? Does the woman care if it's a man or a woman? For me, I'm comfortable with either. I'm a healthcare professional. I have had babies. You know, I gave up my humbleness and humility a long time ago. I don't care. But for some people, that's a really big deal. And so for them, say, for instance, a woman has a a female physician who comes in to examine them or a female nurse practitioner to come in and examine them. That may produce less of a threat state for their brain. It may create a big threat state if it's a male, but for the next person, it might make no difference. And so what you have to do, this is much higher level, but now you're needing to use discernment Is it going to make a difference to this patient or even is it potentially going to make a difference that there is a a broad age difference, that there is a gender difference, that there's a cultural difference between us? And if so, how do I incorporate that knowledge into my overall practice of how I'm going to interact with this patient? And so taking that into account, knowing this situation might actually increase their threat state, then what can I do to lessen that threat? What can I do? And it may be a very subtle threat. It may be a very big fear for them. But what can I do to decrease that? And what kinds of now I'm using, again, tapping into my emotional intelligence, 
putting myself in their shoes and saying, wow, this may be a very uncomfortable situation for them. And how can I lessen that? And humor is just one of the many tools that you can use. This is the beautiful thing. You have a huge tool set to pull from. But what I see so often is that healthcare professionals don't include humor in that toolkit, in that tool set. And by doing so, they've really cut themselves short from something that could be very effective and bonding in a situation. So what do you do in these situations if you do suspect that there is going to be some kind of a threat state because there's a gender difference, because there's an age difference, because there's a cultural difference or whatever it may be? How do you start looking for commonalities? What are the commonalities that you do have? And this is really one of the fun things about humor and one of the skill sets that I teach. Uh, One of the exercises that I didn't get to do with you guys, but I have a, a game that I've created called Funny You Should Say That. And it's an interactive game where as participants, we have a card deck and the card deck has questions, probing questions that you ask of yourself and then share with others. So for instance, who was the funniest person in your class uh, when you went to school and why? Or who's the funniest person in your family? Or what's the funniest thing that you've ever seen in a restaurant or what's the funniest thing that you've ever seen experiencing food? I mean, some of these, you have to kind of stop and think about it for a little bit. But what happens is that as we're going through these kinds of questions, other people start thinking, oh, funny, you should say that. I had an experience also in a restaurant where the waiter dropped a lobster off of the tray and, you know, and it rolled across the floor and he picked it up, walked out, walked back in. He said, with a different lobster, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, who's getting the lobster that just dropped on the floor? It's like these kinds of things that what is most personal is most universal. And if you can start finding the commonalities between you and your patient, you're decreasing that threat state. And if you can add a layer of humor into that. Now, not only are you lessening the threat state, you're increasing the state of trust. And that's where I want to help high performers get. I want to help them achieve that level of success. So actually, one more question in relation to that. So say you've thought of all these things and you're like, okay, I'm in a good situation. You try to be funny and it fails or you flop or you can tell that you actually ended up reading wrong and now you've offended the patient. What can you do? Mm -hmm. I know we talked about if you see another provider who fails, what do you do in that situation with the patient when you fail? You own it. You own it and you address it and you learn from it and adjust accordingly because you're going to fail sometimes. And we shouldn't be afraid to fail, but the more ready we are the and the more prepared we are, it definitely decreases that. But we're still going to guess wrong sometimes. And again, I think that overall the benefits outweigh the risk. But to say, wow, I totally misjudged that. And from your expression, I can see you didn't find that funny. I'm really sorry. But I really want you to know that I value and I honor the fact that you're you're putting your trust in me and I want to earn that trust. And so 
please forgive me that 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 didn't work and just know that your health and your wellness is my utmost priority here and move on. Don't ignore it. Don't try to fix it. (laughs) Don't try to even be funnier, but just after the fact, reflect on it. This is a scientific process. You know, we put something out there, we, we act on it, we assess it, and then we adjust accordingly. And it's like, if that didn't work, sit down and ask yourself, why didn't that work? Oh, because I didn't have the extent of the relationship that I thought I did, or that maybe they had an issue that I was unaware of, or, you know, I made a joke about this. And then they say, oh, they just told me for reasons I don't even know that was offensive. What can I do to make that better the next time? But don't let that cause so much fear of failure that you never do it again. I mean, you don't want to just go blindly into the next case and try that again saying, oh, well, it didn't work that time, but the odds are that it'll work the next time. Assess it and assess why it didn't work and become a student of humor. Everybody that is listening to this, they're high performers because they are continual students in their profession. We didn't go to nursing school. We didn't go to med school and then never learn anything again. This this field is constantly evolving. We read journals. We go to events where we can continue our knowledge. We network with other people. We watch webinars. And this field of applied and therapeutic humor is growing so quickly. And there are resources out there. There are articles out there if you research them. There's tons of evidence-based articles out there in peer review journals and one association, I have no financial connection to this association, but the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, AATH.org, they have an annual conference in 2020. It'll be in New Orleans. I think it's the third week in May. And they have CMEs, they have CEUs for healthcare professionals, for social workers, for educators, for people who understand that applying this to their profession will make them better. And so continually be learning. And if there's any way that I can be a resource for people who are listening, please reach out to me and there will be information in the show notes, I'm sure, on how to do that because I am committed to helping high performers be better at what they're doing and to achieve their desired outcomes with the additional use of strategic humor. And and again, it's such a powerful tool that you don't want to not have this in your repertoire of skill sets. I just had a thought too, when you were giving that advice on how to try to fix a failure. Mm-hmm. And I think like we're a lot of people generally, not clinicians specifically, but generally where they kind of fail when they do make a bad joke or use humor inappropriately is when they become defensive and then sort of double down. And so mm-hmm. I would just add not to definitely don't do that. <laughs> if you, you know, if right. you're ignore it, that's one thing. But I think where people get really, where they really mess up is like, oh, well, you just aren't, don't have a sense of humor. Right, right. And the other thing is, you know, being aware of your patient's sense of humor. 
you know, they're going to give you clues. And you really, as a high performer and one who has high emotional intelligence, you're going to be watching their verbal, their nonverbal, their facial expressions. Do they tense up? I mean, there's so many cues that people will give you. And not only do I want you to become more aware of your skill of providing humor or sharing humor, but for you to learn from your patients as well. What I call this is listening beyond the laughter, because many times your patients will share something with you in the guise of a joke. And it's something that's important to them. And the reason they're sharing it to you in a joke is because it gives them the ability to save face. And if you respond the way they hope you respond, which is with empathy and a healthy response, then it's a win. But if you just laugh it off or you don't respond, they can still save face by thinking or saying, oh, I was only joking. I was just kidding. Again, this is this is a skill set and it's there's so many layers to it. But this was an example and it's not an obstetric example, but it was a, a gentleman that I was caring for many years ago who had come in for testicular cancer. And so they were going to do an orchiectomy. And, you know, when I went in to ask some pre-op questions, I said, typically how, how they say it is, you know, can you please explain the surgery that you're going to have in your own words? And he said, oh yeah, he slapped his thigh. And he said, doc's going to change me from a rooster to a hen. And I could have just laughed and left the room, but there was something about his response that just kind of nudges that sixth sense that we have. And so I just stayed in the room and and chatted with him for a few more minutes and out came all these questions about his sexuality after the surgery. And so it's that, that sense that we get from when our patients are joking that gives us guidance as to, you know, what they may really be needing, but they're not saying, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier to joke about that kind of stuff than especially given all the layers of toxic masculinity or, you know, all these other big concept kind of things that underlie a lot of these issues. So, yeah, it's easier to joke about that than it is to say, I would really just like to discuss my sexuality. And if that changes after the surgery, nobody's going to say that. (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, and the same thing you will hear from female patients and the underlying message that they're trying to share with you. I'm trying, one of my friends who was a nurse practitioner was doing an exam on a young woman and she asked her if she was using contraception and she said, no. And she said, well, are you having sex? And the woman said, yes. And she said, but you're not using contraception. And she said, no. And she said, and you're practicing safe sex. And she said, yes. And it just was like, and the woman was, you know, kind of joking, but not joking and started. And it took a while before my friend finally realized, oh, you know, she has a a lesbian partner. And so she is practicing safe sex, but she doesn't need contraception. But it was just this back and forth conversation that, again, people may not just come right out and tell you something that they're not comfortable sharing with you initially because they're not sure what your response is going to be. 
And so how can you, again, listen beyond just the face value of what they're saying, whether that's through a joke or whether it's otherwise, because they're, they're communicating on so many different levels. That's the theme of our show right there. But that is, you know, that's so true. You, I think that that sums up a lot of things. So I wanted to just ask you, kind of go back to, you talked about joking, using humor with your colleagues. And I just wanted to go back to that a little bit and to see if you could offer any more pragmatic advice about that. Because I think that not only will this help with our patients and building trust, but there's also a big issue with burnout and trying mm-hmm. to increase resilience among clinicians. And I think that humor could obviously help with that and using humor with our colleagues. So do you have any advice on how to start with that if you aren't doing that already? That is a great question. And we hear so much today about burnout and compassion fatigue and stress. And these are very, very real issues. And when I look at the demands on healthcare professionals today, I see us doing something that really we know cognitively is just, it's, it's, it's not a good idea. We're, we're withdrawing from our bodies and from our our minds constantly without making deposits. You know, I liken this to banking. Would you put $100 into your bank account and then be making $500 withdrawals every day? Is your bank going to say, oh, golly, it looks like you need more money. Where can we find that for you? No, they're going to punish you. (laughs) They're going to say, no, you can't do that. And the same happens with our bodies and with our minds. And when we become stressed and we're pulling from reserves that we don't have anymore, um, we're doing our patients a disservice and we're doing ourselves a disservice. And so we can help one another through this self-care of ourselves and helping to support our colleagues. And humor is a great way to do that, to be sharing these like experiences and sharing the, the funny stories that we have and the funny examples. And the I mean, when I am sharing experiences and things that people have shared with me with a healthcare audience, someone who's not in healthcare might hear one of these stories and they'll say, did you make that up? But someone who is is a physician or a nurse in healthcare, they would never ask that question. They know you never have to make this stuff up. The kinds of things that happen in our healthcare setting they they just sometimes it's almost hard to believe ourselves and to share that. But again, recognize that we have to share these things within the confines of a group because people outside of our profession would never understand. A couple of nights ago, I was with some friends who were nurses and we were comparing stories that we had had when we were in the ER. And this one nurse was visiting, he was from Canada, but he was sharing a story about he worked in rural Canada. And he said that in their ER was this uh, older kind of curmudgeonly ER physician. And a young man came in who uh, his chief complaint was that in the shower, he had slipped and fallen onto a Coke bottle a soda bottle, Coca-Cola, and it had to be retrieved, retrieving the foreign object, obviously, from his rectum. And a a few weeks later, 
he comes back in with the same chief complaint. He had fallen in the shower onto a Coke bottle and the physician removed it. And a, a third time, a month or so later, the same young man came in. It's hard to believe, but he, his chief complaint was that he had fallen in the shower on a Coke bottle. And the nurse said, you know, the physician, before he discharged the patient, just gave him one long look, shook his head and said, son, if I were you, I'd stop drinking Coke in the shower. Now, nurse to nurse, that was that was funny and it was stress relieving. And it was like, oh, my gosh, yes, we, we deal with some really crazy, crazy things in our profession. Would that be OK to share with somebody else? Absolutely not. <laughs> but because we see the crazy things that happen and we can both commiserate and go, I know you're never going to believe what happened when I was at work the other day. And the sharing back and forth, it's this laughter, it's this relieving of stress, the decreasing of inflammation, the decreasing of cortisol, the decreasing of muscle tension. And we're also now, if we do this consistently, starting to share and, and store and, and increase our bandwidth physiologically, psychologically, and socially. And so it doesn't all have to be dark humor. It doesn't all have to be gallows humor. I'm saying that that can be part of it. But just commiserating with one another and sharing funny stories, sharing funny stories about your family, sharing funny stories about your life. These are the kinds of things that, again, when we share these commonalities, makes us more human and increases our trust with our colleagues, and we need to be able to trust them. We need to be able to depend on them. And so by using this, we are building this community so that not only can we perform better, but by raising the tide, we're, we're raising all boats. We're, we're lifting one another up so that we can all be better performers. So we've talked a lot in general about some tips. I know you've kind of scattered this through our entire conversation, but just curious if you have any more tips um, or just maybe a little summary that you'd have for using humor appropriately, especially in a sexual and reproductive healthcare setting. And then also if you have any tips on like what you think would be funny or funny things to say. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I would recommend is this, how can you increase the likelihood of experiencing humor? How can you manipulate the environment so that it's more conducive to experiencing humor? Some places that I have worked with, maybe in the waiting room, they've done something to increase the humor experience. One particular clinic that I worked with, it started out that the employees would cut out cartoons and laminate them. And they put them in a basket in the waiting room. And it was just with a little sign that said free take one or something like that. What they didn't expect was that what happened was the patients when they came back started bringing their own cartoons and saying, here, could you laminate this and put this in the basket for someone else? And now they've started to create kind of this community where we acknowledge that humor's good. 
Humor's okay. Humor's fun. You know, what can you do to increase the likelihood? Is it is it in putting some kinds of props like that, cartoons, or maybe a Reader's Digest with laughter's the best medicine on it among your stack of outdated <laughs> magazines in the waiting room? Now, this was a bit extreme, but they were willing to take this risk. I know that uh, when I went to see my physician for annual exam, as I laid down on the exam table with my little tiny sheet that didn't cover I look up and there is a photo of George Clooney staring down at me. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, do I laugh or am I creeped out? But I I chose to laugh. I thought it was funny. And when he came in, I was like, hey, what's with George Clooney? And he just, he started laughing. He goes, ah, that's my nurse practitioner. She thought that was funny. And so, but in the other exam rooms, there were pictures of kittens and puppies and things on the ceiling, acknowledging that you're going to be on your back when you see these. And so various kinds of things like that, but also this willingness that while you're doing an exam or something, I mean, this is an uncomfortable kind of awkward time. Can you have a repertoire of stories that you can share, you know, oh, on my way to work today, or oh, my son said this, or my my wife said that or whatever. But I mean, there's this, it's just this, this art of small talk, again, that is light. I'm not trying to get you to be a comedian. So I'm not even trying to get you to be funny. That will fall into place. The more you practice appreciating humor, the more you practice seeing funny, the greater the likelihood of being funny, if that is what you want. I'm coaching a high performer right now who he he wants, he's not a funny person. And he said, I want to be more funny spontaneously. And so where we're starting is just rewiring his brain to see where are those opportunities where he can be spontaneously funny once He recognizes them. It's like before we even start building up a repertoire of comments that you can have, that's that's a skill set. It's called planned spontaneity. That means when a certain occasion arises that you have a line or a story that you can pull out and use that's humorous. And to that person, it looks like you just thought of this off the top of your head, but you have this planned response that is authentic to you. But before you can use that, you have to be at a place where you can even recognize, oh, this is a space, this is a point in time where I could insert humor. Does this even make sense to you? You have to have a level of appreciation before you can start applying, in my opinion. If you don't have an appreciation for humor, but you're saying, oh, uh, you know, I I don't really like humor. I don't understand it. It's nothing that I would want for myself, but I need to use it for my patient. So, you know, at this pause here, I need to insert a funny line. That's not where I'm trying to take you. I'm trying to take you to a point where you appreciate humor so much yourself that you naturally see the times, the places, the spaces where you can therapeutically and efficiently and successfully apply humor for the betterment of your relationship with your patient. We're not doing it to try to manipulate them. We're doing it because we know that this will better our level of care and better their level of outcome. So I think this definitely in building with needing to have emotional intelligence really requires work on behalf of our listeners. And so in spirit of that, 
where would you recommend that our listeners can go to learn more about this? I know that you mentioned you might be starting an online class, so maybe you can share some resources and maybe talk a little bit about what you're offering. I would love to share that with you. Uh, as as you mentioned, I myself do offer uh, ongoing services ranging from a, a monthly class that I hold for people who want to increase their knowledge and their skill set to coming in and speaking for organizations and, and longer kinds of workshops. And there are other professionals out there who do this as well. Um, I have a number of books that I've written. Some are patient-focused. Some are healthcare professional-focused. One of the books that I wrote for nursing professionals is called What's So Funny About Nursing? And this book is not a joke book. It's not a humor book. It's a, it's a book on how do you actually use humor to improve your professional skills and improve your level of self-care and how you can also do a better job of taking care of your patient. The book that I have coming out with Forbes, uh, Funny Means Money, Strategic Humor for Influence and World Domination, while it is a business book, really, it's about influence and how can we use humor to influence others. And again, with with great power comes great responsibility. We're not trying to use our powers for evil. <laughs> we're we're wanting to use our our humor power for the benefit of our patients. But learning how to use humor to influence our patients and to influence others will allow us to provide a, a higher level of care. And so, if any of your listeners are at all interested in how they can get more information, they could either email me which is Karen at KarenBuxman.com. Or if they want to go to a web link and they can actually even download a sample copy of my upcoming book, the web link is humorforme, H-U-M-O-R-F-O-R-M-E.com. And, uh, and there they will be able to download a book that will start giving them an inside look at how they can use humor to better themselves and, and better their care for others. And as always, I encourage you to become a student. Start start looking through Google Scholar. Start looking for articles on humor. Don't just take my word for it. If you go out there, you will find that this field is growing and that this stuff works. This really does work. And again, not only does it improve the quality of your care, it improves the quality of your life. And so uh, if I can be part of that journey with your listeners, I definitely want to, well, I want to do that. I also think it's important to let our listeners know that this isn't a episode where we are endorsing, we are not receiving contributions from Karen. We genuinely just wanted Karen to have, to, to be on the podcast as a tool. So we consider this one more tool for your toolbox and just want to be transparent that we have no monetary relationship or anything happening with Karen. We just really wanted you to see humor as important and then also have some tools for, again, for you to help with your communication with your patients. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. And I feel like we this is a great first approach and actually, you know, we've gone even, you know, more high level than you guys have asked such great questions that, that we've gone higher and and deeper at the same time <laughs> than a lot of the interviews, partly because a lot of them are just shorter, but also mm -hmm. because of this, you know, higher level of emotional intelligence and cognitive ability that your audience has. So I, I appreciate that. This has been fun. Oh, good. We get paid to overthink things. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we do. We do. So, Karen, before we wrap up, I just wanted to touch on something that you said at the Grand Rounds here, and that's about just generally for clinicians and just us as people, or, you know, some of our listeners are not clinicians. um, How can we bring humor into our own lives, especially if we aren't necessarily think that we have that going for us right now? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. That is a great question. You know, as I mentioned earlier, part of the the process first of all, is to see funny. And and that is to just start raising your awareness, uh, whether it's something that funny people say or something that, that you've seen written in charts or, or, or otherwise. But a second thing that I would recommend is, again, manipulating the environment. How can you manipulate your environment to increase the likelihood of experiencing humor? And this is a combination of physical things. It, it even includes people. But I have a repertoire of availability to humor so that when I need to access it, I can get to it quickly. On the one hand, you know, there are a lot of things in my work environment, whether it's funny books or funny magazines and funny TV shows and and things that I have bookmarked on Netflix or and such, but also right on my phone. And I mean, goodness, these days, who is ever within, uh, you know, uh, reach of their phone. It's with you all the time. And I have tons of things on my phone that, again, increase the likelihood. I have funny audio books. I have bookmark things on on YouTube. Oh, my gosh. If uh, the, the quickest hack I think I could recommend to anybody is quick Google laughing babies because of the mirror neurons in our brains. It's just impossible almost to watch laughing babies and not at least feel some kind of stir of amusement. Our brains are just wired that way. Our brains are wired for us to laugh. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but babies who are blind and deaf, they still laugh. We are wired. We are hardwired to laugh. So how can we increase the likelihood of that? I have social media pages. I have Pinterest pages. I have all of these kinds of things that I have carefully built into my environment to increase the likelihood that when I need it, I can get to it. And the other piece of that is I've also created an accountability partner. She and I have made a commitment to one another that every day we will send something funny to the other person. And we may miss an occasional day, but on a daily basis, this is what we do. And here's what happened that was an unexpected benefit for me because my best friend, she is so successful and she's a a successful author and speaker and all these things, but she suffers from anxiety and depression. And she's very transparent about this. I'm not telling anybody something that she wouldn't tell you. And so I felt like this was my gift to her. Every day I'm going to find something uh, on the internet or whatever, and I'm going to text it to her. But what happened was that in my starting of my day every day to find something humorous for her, it started reframing my day because now that's part of my daily routine. And, and consistency is another piece of this if you're wanting to build bandwidth. So every day, part of my routine is experiencing humor for at least 20 minutes, if not longer. And so part of this is immersing myself. And when I find the humor, now my norepinephrine drops, my mood increases, I feel better 
because I have found this humor. And when I share it with her, now I get an extra dopamine kick and an oxytocin blast because I have done this act of kindness for her by paying it forward. And so if you can have an accountability partner, that will help in your consistency. And really, so much of this is about doing it intentionally and consistently over time. And now you're really going to start reaping all of the benefits. Yeah, I love that perspective. It's like diet and exercise and humor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Humor sounds a little bit more fun than than uh, right. We don't need to break sugar, a sweat. <laughs> right. We don't have to go to the exercise. We don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to break a sweat. You don't have to break a bank. You don't even have to eat kale. You can do this, <laughs> and by gosh, you can enjoy it. Right. Well, Karen, thank you so much. Nicole and I would both personally like to thank you for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? Oh. Yes, I do. Let me let me add this. As I mentioned before, I love learning. I love reading. And, and one of the top 100 books I think everybody should read in their lifetime is by Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was actually a prisoner at Auschwitz. And he went on to write an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And my favorite quote from his work is this. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. Stimulus response, stimulus response. There is a space. And there are so many things that we can choose to put in that space. So many times we're just an automatic pilot. We don't even choose to put something in that space, but to choose not to choose is actually a choice. And so what I'm asking people to consider is in that space of all of your daily interactions, in those moments that you have a choice, I want you to consider choosing humor. I want you to consider choosing humor, not by chance, but by choice. And if you do that, I guarantee you the quality of your life is going to be the better for it. And so I thank you guys so much for letting me share all of this information with you today. This has just been an absolute delight. Oh, awesome. Well, yeah, we have enjoyed it too. Yes. And this is probably the nerdiest conversation (laughs) I've ever had about humor. I mean, the level of biology that just happened with humor, I mean, it's a little mind blowing in and of itself. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) first for everything. Isn't it? And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.